tonight we're going to look at Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Jesus has made some pretty bold statements as we've seen uh, in the last few chapters of Luke. This is the final week of His life. He has claimed to be the Messiah by accepting the shouts of Hosanna as He rides into the city on a donkey. He's claimed to be the Lord of the temple by cleansing it. And He's claimed to be the very Son of God by speaking to them, the, the crowds, about the parable of the vineyard. He says, My Father gave you this vineyard, and you have beaten some prophets who have come and killed others. And now, when the Father has actually sent His own Son, you will actually kill Him. So He's making a a prophecy about His own death and at the same time claiming to be the very Son of God. So here, in our text this evening, beginning in verse 19, it's now Tuesday, the Tuesday before He dies, and the religious leaders are infuriated at Him and are seeking to kill Him, as we'll see here in the first verse, verse 19. But they are prevented to do so because the crowds still see Him with favor. They still love Him. So let me begin reading in Luke chapter 20 with verse 19, and we'll read through chapter 21, verse 4. This is the Word of God. scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. And you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And they questioned him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died childless. And the second... And the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. She said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they can't even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. 
for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. The religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus, but he turns the tables on them. In verses 19 through 40, the religious leaders tried to trap him. And then in verses 41 through chapter 21, verse 4, Jesus turns the table on them, shows the wickedness of the religious leaders. So, first, the religious leaders try to trap Jesus, verses 19 through 40 of chapter 20. The first trap comes by way of the question whether or not they should pay taxes to Caesar. Notice in verse 21, the question, Teacher, we know that you speak speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to any but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they question him. And we know that this is a trap because they recognize that the previous parable the one from verses 9 through 18 about the vineyard, they recognize that that parable is about themselves. That the vineyard owner, God, is going to come to them and destroy them if they don't accept His Son. And in verse 19, it tells us they understood, the second part of the verse, verse 19, they understood that He spoke this parable against them. And so, they decided, verse 20, that they needed to send somebody to Him who pretended to be righteous in order to trap him. They wanted to catch him in a false statement. And the reason that they wanted to trap him was so that they could arrest him. They wanted to see him killed. They realized that they are the ones who rejected the Son and will be crushed by the Son. So they're going to try to thwart that by arresting him. See, for the religious leaders, they recognized that the truth of the parable of the vineyard was about them. But understanding a truth is not equivalent to knowing a truth or to accepting a truth, right? We can understand something and not accept it. Romans 1 tells us that all people know that God exists, and yet they defiantly suppress the truth because they don't want the ramifications of knowing that God exists, which is to obey Him. In Revelation 16, God pours out His wrath on those who have the mark of the beast. And when hundreds of thousands of people die and are tortured with this hail and these sores, and they recognize amazingly that it is from God, we would expect, they know it, that it's God's judgment, the plagues have come. And yet, in Revelation 16, 9, it says, 
Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. They knew, they will know, during the tribulation, that these things are coming upon them because of God Almighty, and yet they will not repent. Knowing is not the same as accepting. And this shows us the extreme blindness that has pervaded every person who has not been given sight through the grace of God. That that each of us need eyes to see the glory of the Gospel. And that's something that only God can do through His Spirit. Only God can illumine our minds. And so we fall on Him for mercy, trusting that He alone can give us sight. See, these religious leaders that we're reading about tonight understood the truth, the ramifications of what they were doing, but were unwilling to accept the principle of it, to accept the implications of it. And so they decide they're going to to try to trap Jesus. Now they begin their trap with some flattery. In verse 21, we know that you speak and teach correctly. You can just kind of sense the flattery there right in the text. And you understand why they're doing this? They're setting a trap. We already saw that in verse 19. They're setting, or, or verse 20. They're trying to catch him or trap him. If you were trying to play a trick on your brother, and you wanted to get him to fall into a hole that you had dug, would you leave the hole uncovered and put a big sign there that says "Watch out for the big hole"? No. You want him to be unsuspecting. You want his guard to be down. Because if he gets any indication that there's a trap coming, then he's going to be more aware of his surroundings and the trap won't work. He'll walk right around it. This is what the chief priests and scribes thought they could do to Jesus. We're not going to show him this trap that we're trying to get him to fall into. We're going to try to keep him unsuspecting. We're trying to keep his guard down so that he will actually fall into the trap. But notice in verse 20. Uh, verse 23, Jesus detects the trap. It says, But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. The last time that they had asked him a question was at the beginning of chapter 20 where they asked, By whose authority are you doing these things? Who gives you the authority to do these miracles, do these teachings, cleanse the temple? Who who gives you the authority to do these things? Does it come from heaven? Or from men? And Jesus answers them with the question. He turned the tables back on them and actually never answered their question. And so, they want to be ready this time, but Jesus detects their trickery again. Now, let's look at the question itself in verse 22 because there are only two answers effectively. Verse 22, is it, here's the question that they try to trap him with. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So, there's only two answers. Answer number one, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Answer number two, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, if he chose answer number one, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the crowd would have turned against him. Why? Because this tax was going to a pagan government who claimed claimed some kind of ownership over the Jews. And the Jews felt like like Caesar was treating himself as a god. And so to give taxes to him was to condone something that the crowd would not have liked. So 
There was answer number one. The answer number two was, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And if Jesus responded this way, then the Romans would arrest him. So they felt like they had him trapped. Either way, he's going to get himself into trouble, either with the crowd or with the Roman government. But Jesus turns the table on them in verses 23 through 25. He has them bring a denarius. And he says, whose likeness, verse 24, whose likeness and inscription does it have? So let me see that coin that you got. Whose inscription's on there? And they say Caesar's. He effectively is saying, listen, you despise the Roman government and you hate that you have to pay taxes to the Roman government, which is corrupt. Because this government thinks that they are the divine authority over you. They don't acknowledge God's rule. And yet you actually have just handed to me a coin from your pocket that had an inscription on it. And you think that that there is only one choice or that there are only two choices, either submit to the government or submit to God. That, That we can't do both. That we can't submit both to the government and to God. And so he says, grab a coin from your pocket and let me take a look at it. And his response is found in verse 25. Give or render to Caesar what is Caesar's and give or render to God what is God's. So, if Caesar has this coin that has his inscription on it, give it back to him. You're completely right in doing that. It is his property. Give it back to him. But let me also tell you something else. If something has the inscription of God on it, give that to God. Now, he's not talking about a coin that would have a picture of God. What would it what would it be that would have an inscription of God upon it? Our hearts, right? We are all made in the image of God. Our whole lives belong to God. He's saying, "You see that coin? Give that to Caesar." But if you see something else with God's inscription on it, your very life, you need to give that to God. See, God owns it all. Now, we still have to wonder and ask the question, how could Jesus condone the paying of taxes? How could Jesus condone the paying of taxes when effectively He was, in giving this money to the government, was submitting himself to a God-hating ruler like Caesar. You see, the Pharisees were, were not clear on all, how this all worked, especially in this new age with, with Christ coming on the scene. Because historically, when you obeyed the, the God-appointed governor, you obeyed God. That's because the, the Jews historically were under a theocracy where God appointed a ruler, a king, prophet, and they would just submit themselves to that prophet, king. As long as they did that, they were submitting themselves to God. If they didn't submit to that government, they weren't submitting themselves to God. And the Pharisees saw the pagan government as God and God as mutually exclusive. Like, you either choose one or the other. Now we're in a situation where we don't have a theocracy. So how do we live? We can't Surely we can't submit to the pagan government by giving them taxes. Jesus is making a radical statement here. He's saying a government no longer has to ally itself to the true and living God in order to be legitimate. 
that even a pagan government is legitimate. Jesus was speaking about Rome, which was abusive and oppressive to the Jews. And if you don't sense the shock of what Jesus is saying here, consider what this tax was going to help pay for. Jesus is saying, do you know how I'm going to be led to a Roman cross? I am telling you to pay for the very salary of the people who will put me there. That's how committed Jesus was to paying taxes to a pagan government. Even the, the most wicked government, God's saying, pay the taxes that are due to them. Now you may see a laundry list of problems with our current government. But Romans 13 teaches us that all governments are God's governments. That is, all appointed rulers have been appointed by God and are servants of God. We may not like all the things they do, but, but certainly Jesus didn't either, and yet He says, pay your taxes. Give to them what is due. But also, don't forget the second part, give to God what is due to Him as well your whole life. And the point is is that we have duties to both God and country. And except in rare cases, God expects us to fulfill both. That we must both submit to the human government and submit to God. In rare cases, we'll have to do one or the other because the government is telling telling us to do something that God is opposed to. But the last time I checked, God wasn't commanding you to abort your baby. God wasn't command, or, or I'm sorry, the, the human government was not commanding you to do such a thing. Or the human government wasn't commanding you to do some kind of a sin. Right? And so we can actually submit ourselves to a human government because in general, they are promoting good and they're suppressing evil. That's the, the goal and the design of governments. The alternative is anarchy. Just everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And so, as much as we might like to loathe and despise and complain about our government, they are put there by God to protect us and to accomplish His purposes. And so at this first this first uh, question, they are unable to catch Him, verse 26, they are unable to catch Him in a saying in the presence of the people. Now, apparently, uh, they probably took according to Mark's Gospel and in uh, the other Gospels, apparently they had taken all night to think through kind of the perfect question. This was the perfect question. They had, they had met as a Sanhedrin, decided this was the one to go. And they had a follow-up question here in verses 27 through 40. And the second trap that they set is the trap with regard to a question about marriage in the afterlife. This group of religious leaders is a group that are known as, verse 27, the Sadducees. Notice in the parentheses there, they deny the resurrection. They deny that there's any kind of resurrection. And the reason for that is because they believed that the Scripture did not teach teach about the resurrection. And their Scripture was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Acts 23 tells us that they also, in addition to not believing in the resurrection, they also didn't believe in spirits or demons, angels. And so they come up with this question that probably was a a stumper 
It was one that they had used over and over again when they had had conversations with the Pharisees, kind of their um, their counterparts. And the goal of the question is, again, to trap Jesus, to show Him to be a fool. Because if He followed Moses, then He'd be forced to deny the resurrection. If you follow our Bible, which, again, is their first five books of the Bible, that's the only ones they accept. If you follow our Bible, our Scripture, then you have to deny the resurrection. The Pharisees probably had been stumped by this hundreds of times before and maybe didn't know how to answer this question, and so now they use it on Jesus to see what He might say. The question is found in verses 28-33. through It actually comes by means of a story saying, listen, when a, when a husband and wife marry according to the law of Moses and then the husband dies and the husband doesn't leave a child, well, the, the wife is, or, or the, the next oldest brother is supposed to take the wife in marriage so that he can continue his brother's family line. That the inheritance would go to that oldest brother who had died, but since he's dead, it would go to his son through his wife, effectively. This is called a leveret marriage where the surviving brother marries the widow. So we have one bride for seven brothers. Each of them die, and then she marries the next, and so on. And eventually she dies, they all die, and none of them have any, none of the, the men are able to bring about any children. And so here's the question. Verse 33, In the resurrection, this resurrection you speak about, that you think is so real, well, whose wife will she be since all seven had married her? They think they know the answer. Because she certainly can't be wife of all of them. Jesus will not answer in that way. And therefore, since you can't answer this question, there can't be a resurrection. It proves what Genesis through Deuteronomy has taught. There is no resurrection. And again, Jesus turns the table on them in verses 34 through 38. First, he, he wants to show that they misunderstand the power of God, verses 34 to 36. They misunderstand the power of God. First, he, he shows them that the afterlife is different than the present life. In that, in the afterlife, there is no marriage. We, we are going to be like the angels in that way, and that, that we don't procreate in the next life. Think about it. The, one of the purposes for uh, the ability to procreate is to repopulate the earth because of the curse that has come upon the earth, right? Because death exists, there needs to be a reproduction of life. But in the next life, there will be no death. So there won't be a need for repopulation. And so. Jesus says, first of all, you understand, you misunderstand the power of God that in the next life we don't need that. God, in fact, will make us to have different bodies and that we will not procreate. The second thing that they misunderstood was their Old Testament Scriptures, their Torah, the first five books of the, the Old Testament. They missed it, verses 37 and 38. Now, it's amazing because Jesus could have proven that the resurrection is real from one of the Old Testament historical books or one of the Old Testament prophets. He could have taken them to one of the Psalms and showed that the resurrection exists. He could have taken them to Job. But instead, He takes them to the Scripture that they believe in, the first five books of the Old Testament. 
And he's going to prove it from the very books that they're supposed to understand. And he uses this example in verses 37 and 38. But that the dead are raised... Okay, so first of all, you don't understand the power of God. Secondly, you don't understand the Scriptures. That the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses was at the burning bush around 1500 B.C., where were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Where were they? Were they kind of off in another city, far away? Were they not yet born yet? Where were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the time of the burning bush? They were long dead, right? They had been dead for hundreds of years. Abraham, uh, remember Abraham was around 2000 B.C., Moses 1500 B.C., then David 1000 B.C., the Nehemiah 500 B.C., kind of the, the four main hooks. Uh, and so Abraham, 2000 B.C., roughly around there, Moses, 1500 B.C., God comes to him and says, I am the God. He doesn't say this. I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac and Jacob. But I am the God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead to Moses, but God's saying, not to me. Why? Because, verse 38, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. That is, they come to life again. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. The Sadducees thought that the promise given to these men regarding a great nation was only for their children when in fact God had established something different. Not just for their children, but an eternal relationship with them. And if you're a believer, death will change your relationship to this world, but it will not change your relationship to God. And that is the case with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God of the living, and God is the God of the dead. So they misunderstand their own Scriptures. Something as simple as a verb tense, they missed it. That the Old Testament, in fact, their very Bible, the first five books of the Bible, first five books actually taught that the resurrection is real. Well, after this, they didn't know any other questions that they could ask Him. Verse 40, They did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. He had turned the tables on them three times now. Exposed their foolishness. Exposed their trap. And so now, in verses 41 through chapter 21, verse 4, he wants to kind of put the pressure back on them. First, he does it by identifying identifying himself as the Lord of David. He asks them a question. Let, Let me ask you a question now. Verse 41. How is it that they say that the Christ is David's son? Remember, Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah at the triumphal entry. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one, the promised one who comes in the name of the Lord. He has claimed to be the Lord of the temple by cleansing it and the very Son of God because of the parable of the vineyard. And now he's saying, I'm the great Son of David. In order to prove that he is the great Son of David, 
Jesus draws their attention to a passage that they would know, particularly the the scribes and the Pharisees, Psalm 110. That's where this passage comes from, verse 42 and 43. And he says, How can people say that the Messiah is David's son? And Jesus is not disputing that the Messiah is David's son. But in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that that his line would never end, that his kingly line would last forever, that there would be someone who uh, who would rule on the throne of David who would last forever. He's saying, how can that person also be the son of David? Look at verse 44. Uh, Let's look at verse 42 just to see the context. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said, that's the Father, said to my Lord, that's the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's a promise God's making to David's Lord. That's the Messiah. Verse 44, Therefore David calls him Lord, but how is he also his son? That's the question. How could an ancestor call one of his descendants Lord? That doesn't make sense. Typically, the person of honor is the ancestor. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. That's usually the way it is in our day, especially in other cultures. But it would be unusual for a father to have less honor than a son. And that's what David's saying. How could David call his son Lord? How could he give his son honor? And the only way that that's possible is that the Messiah is also the divine Son of God. That this Son of David was not only human. Yes, He was 100% human, but He was also 100% God. They couldn't admit or accept this idea because they saw the Messiah as simply another gifted human leader like David. And yet, if you look at your Old Testament text, you will see that He's more than a son. That's Jesus' point here in verses 41 to 44. In verses 45 and through 47, Jesus warns against the external conformity of the scribes. And here, He says, you need to watch out for these people because it's going to happen in all sorts of various different places. The three places that are mentioned are in the marketplace, in the synagogue, and in the banquet room. The three actions that we see in these verses is that they want to be noticed by the crowds, they want to hear the people's praise, and they want to sit in places of highest recognition. And then the three common features that we see in verses 45-47 through is that in each place they are seeking honor for themselves. And in each place they are evil. These scribes were well off financially. And yet, look at verse 47, they devour widows' houses. They chose to exploit those who were financially weak. They are evil. They are Their prayers are given. They're nice and long. But the purpose of their length is so that people will hear them. And the third common feature, first, they seek honor. Second, they are evil. Third, they will be judged. Jesus says, beware of them, verse 46. Four, verse 47, the second part of the verse, these will receive greater condemnation. Those who seek a place of honor for themselves apart from God will be judged by God. 
the only place of high recognition that they are earning for themselves is before God's almighty judgment when He acknowledges them all right. And Jesus tells us to watch out for these kind of people who like to do things in order to receive praise. And I think He's also implying that we need to guard ourselves against this type of thinking as well. That we need to make sure that we are checking our own hearts so that we don't come to a place where we are living for the praise of people. Because those who live for the praise of people will be judged by God. third thing that we see in this passage, beginning in chapter 21, is that Jesus commends the humble, dependent giving of the widow. Jesus commends the widow for her humble, dependent giving. So He's exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and He's told us to watch out for those kinds of people. And now He wants to show a contrast because notice who is there giving gifts into the treasury. Verse verse 1, And He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And in other places He said you know, they, they tend to make a big scene about it. They do it in order to be seen by men. But she, probably just in a little corner, grabs two small copper coins, verse 2. The Greek term there is lepton. It's the smallest coin in use during the time. It was worth a half of 1% of a denarius. A denarius was one day's wage. And so it was about five minutes of work. That's how much she put in. Five minutes of work at minimum wage, maybe a dollar or two in our day. And Jesus is saying, do you see that? Do you see what she just did? It's not the amount that impressed Jesus, but rather the sacrifice. Look at verse 3. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. If he stopped there, we'd be like, what? How could she put in more? She just put in a few bucks. But he goes on and he says, For they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So it wasn't about the amount as much as, as the sacrifice. See, the rich, they give their money in order to gain more for themselves. It's more for the rich. It's more like an investment, right? Like if we give this money, yeah, it comes out of our pocket. It comes out of our bank account. But we can actually earn something in return. We can earn favor from the people when they see us put this money in. So they're actually earning for themselves more honor, a higher position, and eventually, amazingly, more money. So it wasn't really a sacrifice for them. It was like an investment. But this widow gave out of her poverty, verse 4, not in order to receive anything in return, not to gain public approval. Look what I did. Look how much money I gave. So they would look at her for a position and give her a position or something. But simply, she gave it, according to Jesus, because she loved God. She gave it out of her poverty. She gave in a sacrificial way. And so, here's the truth that we learn from this, is that Jesus is more concerned about the quality of your giving than the quantity. We, we understand this, right? He's like a thoughtful father. He would rather have a handwritten note or a drawing from his child than a Hallmark card filled with $500. He'd rather have the thing that took effort and thought and creativity that took some sacrifice on the part rather than, you know, got some extra money, I'll just hurry up and just slip this in the card and give it to them. God is more concerned with the heart. 
And this event really builds on the previous teaching about watching out for the scribes who love to stand in the spotlight and be seen. And so we need to guard ourselves against seeking for approval of people. Don't be flamboyant about your giving. Instead, give to God out of your heart. Why is it that you come to church? What motivates you to give and to serve? One of the tendencies for those who are Christians for a long time is that we can forget the purpose of why we do what we do. Things as simple as going to church and giving to God and singing. And as a result, we can replace the right purpose. You know, when we started doing this, it was all about God. It was all about glorifying God. And we can replace that with a self-centered purpose. I want to be in the spotlight. And we can start to participate in services for the purpose of people seeing us participate in services. And we can start giving in order for people to see us giving. And I believe that if we allow that sort of mindset to continue, one of two things will happen. Either God will discipline us if we are truly His children, or God will give us over to the desires of our flesh. He will give us over to our sin. And if the second is true, it will only be a matter of time before we digress from being a fool to being a scoffer like the religious leaders. They were scoffers. It's not just that they denied the faith, but they also scoffed at the faith. They they tried to remove Christ from their lives completely. And we can do this as well if we can't stand the implications of His mastery over us. That He wants our hearts. So my challenge to us tonight is that we need to evaluate our hearts. And that's a difficult thing to do. How can we look into the recesses of our heart and try to understand who we are, what we think, what our motivations are? Jeremiah 17.10 says that the Lord knows the heart. He searches the heart. So the way that we do that is by looking into the mirror of God's Word. Allowing the Word of God, which is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, to, to pierce through the dividing thunder of soul and spirit. We need the Word of God to do it. We need God to search our hearts to see if there is any wicked way in us. When it comes to questions about motivations, we don't usually like to think about our own hearts because we generally don't want to come in the light, into the light. We don't want to see the ugliness that resides in our hearts. But this passage today is designed to help expose our hearts that we can be like the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, trying to trap Jesus. And the question that that we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to submit to Him when we understand His truth? Are we willing to get out of the, the, the spotlight to step aside and let God be glorified? Because that's ultimately what we live for. That's what we were designed for. That's what we were made to do. We were made to be like the moon. We don't generate light. We reflect light or deflect light. We reflect the light of the sun and in so doing, we show the great power of the sun. That's the way our lives are as Christians. Our goal is to reflect and to make and show as brilliant the light of the sun, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, search us tonight. Know our hearts. See if there be any wicked way in us and turn us 
unto righteousness and and unto your your truth, your knowledge. Help us to grow in this area. Lord, expose us. Help us to know where we need to to repent and turn from our sins and where we need to draw close to you. Help us to to be able to be honest with ourselves with regard to the truth of your word. And may you be pleased in the way that we respond to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, let's turn to number 242 as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. 242. Come to the cross upon Calvary. 242. And stand with me as we sing. <laughs> 